Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 26th, 2015, and my guest is Luigi Zingales, the Robert C. McCormick Distinguished Service Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. We're going to be talking about his recent paper, Does Finance Benefit Society? And that's, uh, I think, with a question mark, uh, not an exclamation point, uh, but it's a question mark at the end of that, that phrase. Luigi, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you. Now, as I said, it could be, does finance benefit society with an exclamation point? But you, um, you're starting with some skepticism, and you start with the discrepancy between what academics think of the financial sector relative to what the public thinks of it. And I want to begin with the academic perspective. Uh, what do economists and professors of finance typically think of the financial sector and its contributions? So I think that uh, economists, in particular finance professors, tend to be quite bullish on the benefit of finance uh, finance in general and of financial innovation. Uh, They think financial innovation boosts economic growth, and uh, um, of course there are exceptions, there are some problems, but by and large the uh, judgment is extremely positive. And how about the public? The public doesn't seem to share this in the sense uh, even the more educated public, uh, like uh, uh, the reader of The Economist, the magazine The Economist, when uh, confronted with the statement financial innovation boosts economic growth, they voted 57% no. But then if you ask sort of uh, the average American, uh, the phenomenon is uh, much, much stronger. And it says you have a 22% the thing that uh, finance actually hurts a great deal, the U.S. economy, and another 25% that it hurts a bit. Um, so the majority of Americans tend to think that uh, it actually does more harm than good. And, of course, we're right and they're wrong. <laughs> I think that uh, the point is uh, whether we are right or wrong, I think this, uh, this uh, uh, difference creates a problem. Uh, I think we need to understand why there is such a big difference. And? And and the answer is, you know, you can argue that uh, in part is due to the fact we don't explain well what uh, uh, we're doing and the benefit of finance. And as a finance professor, is pretty important. By the way, this uh, um, article is basically the longer version of a speech I gave uh, as the end of my year as president of the American Finance Association. So it was meant to address uh, financial uh, uh, academic uh, um, at large. And so I think we should be concerned that we don't explain that well, but we should be even more concerned that uh, the public sentiment is important, in my view, for the support of a good financial system. Uh, once the public at large is resentful uh, about the financial system, uh, the rule of law is at risk. And when the rule of law is at risk, 
finance starts to work not so well. And in fact, my claim is that uh, the only kind of finance that can work in, that, in those situations is the most uh, corrupt and uh, um, crony one and making the problem even worse. So I'm very much afraid of a vicious circle that goes from uh, uh, public resentment to uh, interference with the rule of law, to inability to maintain a good financial system, uh, to even more corruption in the financial system that leads to more public resentment and so on and so forth. And I think we, as financial academics, we have a vested interest in uh, stopping this vicious circle. I, I note that you um, gave this talk at the end of your time at the, in office at the at the um the association but uh let's let's put that to the side because i think in the paper you point out uh in the paper you point out that it's not just this political f- feedback loop system that you're worried about you're also worried correctly so in my opinion and and you talk about it quite eloquently in the paper you're also worried about fact that the public is onto something and that the standard uh, justifications for finance are, are a little bit incomplete. They leave out some of the various things that we will be talking about. Before we get there, though, I'd talk about what what's the rosiest case. Make, make the most attractive case you can for the contributions of finance. And, of course, when we say finance, it sounds like are we in favor of credit or borrowing or – the ability to make a loan or finance a business. And, of course, that can be crucial to the effectiveness of an economy. But we're really talking about, at the margin, the growth in the size of the financial sector in, in recent decades, the growth of complex uh, financial instruments that are not fully understood. Uh, what's the most attractive case that an academic uh, financial economist can make for the, to, for the full story? Oh, first of all, I would start with venture capital. I think that uh, what the most dynamic, most innovative part of the U.S. Uh, um, economic sector, the one that drives uh, U.S. economic growth, is uh, uh, or are look, young startups, and uh, the explosion of startups is in a large part uh, the result of uh, a vibrant venture capital sector in the United States. So, in that sense, financial innovation was very useful in promoting. Uh, economic growth and uh, even the best type of economic growth. Um, The other aspect is uh, we today give uh, for granted that in spite of the sort of variability in exchange rates and so on and so forth, the financial system can operate. Uh, Remember that uh, before 1971, when uh, the dollar sort of uh, broke uh, its parity with the with uh, gold, the uh, most uh, economists thought that was impossible to operate in a fully flexible uh, exchange rate system. It was only Milton Friedman who uh, very presciently said that uh, this was the best arrangement. Today is a fact of life. So we deal with that. And, and I think that uh, um, many financial instruments help us do that. And so uh, c- companies routinely borrow in different currencies and uh, good companies hedge against the currency risk so that uh, the fluctuations don't affect uh, the real side of the economy. That's a more general argument you hear about a whole bunch of 
financial innovation. So uh, I would think – I think about this in two ways. Tell me if I have this right. One is it allows uh, economic actors, whether they're firms or individuals, to deal more effectively with risk, to smooth risk, to um, put multiple uh, eggs in your basket so you don't uh, – kinds of eggs. You don't have all, all – that's bribery in that metaphor. But uh, you know what I mean. The argument that, that you can smooth risk and cope with it more effectively by some financial innovation that's taken place. And that your example, the currency chain, cur- floating uh, currency rates is one example, but it's it's widespread in other aspects of business. The other is an arbitrage argument that, that finance helps get the prices right. And this is a Hayekian argument. You refer to it in passing in your paper idea that you know with prices sending signals it's really important that they send the right signals and arbitrage opportunities in a good financial system get get taken advantage of so that prices reflect full information are those the two key things that that would be the general argument for, for I, financial I think those, innovation those two are, are very important i will add a third one which is to match talent with money uh, i think that uh, in the old days, where the financial system was not very developed, the only way to develop a new ideas it was to be born rich, to have resources and uh, uh, use them. Today, uh, and increasingly so to the extent the financial system works well, you can uh, uh, start a company, uh, apply an idea, or even run a large companies, even if you're not born rich and if you don't have a lot of money. I think that that is really uh, the third key aspect of uh, a good financial system. And, and I want to say very clearly, I think that the, the reason why I'm so concerned is because the potential role of finance is enormous and a good financial system is really important, not just to growth, but also if you want to uh, equality of opportunities. So in your paper, you write, quote, there is no theoretical basis for the presumption that financial innovation by expanding financial opportunities, increases welfare. So the, the ones we've been talking about, say the existence of a venture capital system where bright, uh, creative, innovative people can get access to capital, uh, say the, the uh, equity market where firms can go public and issue stock, or say the bond market where firms can borrow money from and, and promise a, a fixed return, those are what you might call vanilla finance. Venture capital is a little more complicated, but – most of the growth, it feels like a lot of the growth in the financial sector is in the more complex set of innovations. Those are the ones where the welfare effects are uncertain and they may not be so good. Is that is that correct? Actually, uh, that's not uh, my main argument in the sense uh, uh, the whether an instrument is good or bad does not necessarily depend on its complexity. Uh, we can come – uh, back to this in a second, but payday loans are sort of uh, old-fashioned sort of uh, uh, pawn shops uh, revisited. So it's not particularly fancy, um, but still they might be quite uh, uh, bad overall, and I will come back to, to the issue. Um, but uh, And the, the one I was describing, hedging of that is if you want to Currency swap is a bit more fancy, uh, but I see as a good instrument. So I don't think it's the uh, technical component that makes an instrument good or bad. I think that uh, uh, what I uh, say in this this speech, in this uh, paper, is we have been a bit too lazy in saying that everything is good. And in fact, if you 
uh, dig deeper, even at the theoretical foundation, there's no presumption that every new instrument is good. And it says, uh, the reason why, uh, as economists, we tend to believe that competitive markets deliver sort of uh, a good, efficient outcome is because we rely, uh, rely very heavily on what we call in jargon the first welfare theorem, which is quite broad, quite general, and in the market for goods apply pretty closely to reality. When it comes to financial markets, in order for the financial markets to... Um, uh, be uh, in order to be able to apply the the, the uh, first welfare theorem to financial markets, you will have to have what is called in jargon complete markets, which means that uh, you have to have every security trade in uh, every price, every state of the world, and so on and so forth, which is not a realistic assumption. So this is uh, simply saying that uh, um, there is no presumption one way or another, which doesn't mean that uh, financial innovation is bad, uh, but uh, certainly does not mean that every kind of financial innovation is good. Well, I want to I want to move away from the formalism because I think um, I suspect most of us who like market outcomes are not relying really on the first welfare theorem. The first welfare theorem is a technical. Result, it's an interesting achievement in, um, in uh, human uh, thinking. But I, I think deep down, and certainly for me, when you ask is innovation in, say, um, the grocery business a good thing? So in the last 50 years, if you think of all the innovations in the grocery business, uh, the idea of a 7-Eleven, a smaller grocery, uh, the self-checkout, uh, the, the growth of a very large grocery, uh, the delivery of groceries to your house uh, using ordering on the internet. You know, there's there's a, been a, all kinds of you know, a coffee shop in the grocery store. There's so many innovations in the, in the grocery business besides the fact that, that, the, that the food could be better or worse, et cetera. But everything is, is constantly changing. Firms are constantly looking for an edge. And the reason that most, I think, economists would argue deep down – why is that a good thing and not wasteful or destructive even? They'd say, well, if it's not good, most people won't buy it. There aren't a lot of spillover effects that would possibly complicate the analysis. And that's, that's that. In finance or in other couple other sectors, we'll, we'll talk about health, for example, which you bring up. We don't have that, we don't have that confidence because we understand that the, that the relationship between the customer sometimes and the – Outcome is not tightly linked. Customers don't bear the full cost. The people paying for it don't bear the full cost of the people who are necessarily consuming it. And that's when we start to get into issues, it seems to me, of whether innovation is welfare enhancing. Do, do you agree with that or disagree? Oh, I, I completely agree with that. The, the, my only sort of uh, qualification is the first welfare theorem is really the formalization of Adam Smith intuition. Correct. For basically 200 years, economists have tried to formalize what uh, uh, Adam Smith said, and, and finally, in the, the mid-50s, they, they achieved that. So that, I think, is uh, whether you want to rely on Adam Smith's intuition or on the formal proof, I think, is, is very assuring that there is a, a foundation to what was uh, a, a great intuition. And, but you're absolutely correct that this intuition applies very well in the grocery store business in most businesses, I think in finance it doesn't apply very well for two reasons. One is, is exactly what you said, uh, that very often uh, the bias does not fully uh, internalize the, the cost and the risk that they're taking. 
The other one is that uh, uh, very often the buyers are not that sophisticated. That's true in a lot of businesses. But I think the finance, especially the more sophisticated uh, financial innovation, is uh, uh, very good at uh, preying on the unsophisticated component. And uh, if uh, people are not fully aware of what's going on, uh, competition and markets don't work particularly well. And, uh, and I think that uh, uh, that's, that's a bit of a problem. So usually in those situations, my response is, well, okay, so they're complicated and people will find mechanisms for getting information. So in the, I don't know much about cars. So what do I rely on? I rely on brand names. Obviously, that's one way, which is, means it's costly for a firm to abuse me if it, it makes a bad, poorly made car. But I don't just rely on that. I rely on friends who are more informed than I am. I might look at magazines and stories that are written about the cars that, to get some better idea of what they're about. I can I can drive it around, of course, which is some information, but not, not great information, of course. It doesn't tell you a lot about uh, what's going on under the hood. So usually in these situations – we get information from all kinds of places, and the competitive marketplace provides them. Now, you could say the same thing's going on in finance. Oh, sure, they're complicated, and people are poorly informed, but that's why they they go they get a broker, they go to a website, uh, they get advice from friends, and yet it doesn't seem to work quite as well. Why? First of all, uh, it takes a long time to figure out that you have made a big mistake in the pension fund. Uh, and by the time you figure Sometimes, it out, yeah. too late. <laughs> yeah. and second, the level of noise is, is very high. In a sense, uh, you invest in uh, uh, the stock market uh, just before uh, September 2008. Uh, in principle, that's the right strategy. In practice, you see uh, your... Uh, wealth drop 50% in a few uh, weeks or months, and uh, you think that uh, the person advising you is an idiot because he told you that, and vice versa, if uh, there is an immediate rise in the stock market, you think that person is a genius, and uh, um, of course, is neither a, a, a genius nor an idiot, in that case, was just uh, bad or good luck. So separating luck uh, to, from uh, true performance uh, takes uh, a long time and a lot, a lot of sophistication. So the reputation doesn't work as fast and as well. And it does work because uh, we have seen that uh, in the early 70s, uh, financial economists started to say that the best way to invest is uh, through index funds. And slowly, index funds uh, gain an enormous market share. From nothing, they gain an enormous market share in the, in the U.S. So there is learning going on. It just take a long time. Uh, and in the meantime, the problem is not only that uh, some people get duped. The problem is that there, is, there are a lot of resources that are spent trying to do people better rather than trying to <laughs> innovate in the yeah. right direction. Correct. I think that that is the thing that worries me the most. Yeah, and, and the irony, though, is that, you know, I, well, let's talk about this for a minute before we talk about the irony. The, the financial sector is, a, is very diverse. Uh, you've got customers at the individual level. You have firms. You have uh, products that are sold to other financial institutions, by financial institutions. And, you know, when I think about the the worst kind of problems that we're discussing, I'm th I'm thinking of derivatives, 
uh, mortgage-backed securities. And these were not sold typically to everyday people. They they were sold to so-called sophisticated players who were running pension funds, who were running other uh, financial institutions. And so it it is a little bit strange when we talk about uh, being duped or – uh, naive or being unsophisticated, I think. I think the real issue is um, is that problem of randomness and uncertainty and probability that we all struggle with. And uh, as you say, this, there's a lot of noise and hard sometimes, very hard. I think to extract uh, the signal, it's complex. Uh, there's a lot of causation going, a lot of causes going on at the same time. Um, yes, but I think that the, the duping applies more to sort of ordinary human beings. In, when it comes to sophisticated people, what is at play is what we economists call agencies, the fact that uh, uh, the, the buyer doesn't really uh, fully reflect uh, uh, the, the, or absorb the cost of uh, his or her action. So if I am a bank and I take too, too much risk and things don't work out well, the government bails me out, so I don't fully reflect the cost. If I am a trader and things don't go particularly well, I walk away. Now, of course, the CEO should internalize this, but also the CEO can walk away. Now, you're saying, what about the shareholders? The shareholders, unfortunately, are dispersed and not so present in monitoring uh, the the CEOs of this world. So I think that... Uh, um, in the in the financial sector, we have a lot of agents buying uh, um, securities, and as a result, we have a lot of uh, uh, suppliers who design security to uh, really extract the most out of this agency problem. And just to, but just to to push back a little bit, you know that agency problem exists in in most corporate settings, and it gets overcome somewhat, and, and or solved somewhat, or it's not so bad. I think what happens here is that, as you point out, it's, it, it's a little bit harder. But usually our economists responsible people will have to come up with better methods for restraint, uh, restraint on, say, a rogue trader or a, a rogue CEO. Part of the issue is that financial institutions changed their structure quite dramatically over the last 20 years or so. In the 1960s and 70s and part of the 80s, they were typically investing and spending their own money. Uh, they were partnerships. Uh, with the growth of leveraged and public uh, investment banks, it seems to me that's one explanation for why this sector has grown so dramatically. Do you think there's truth to that? Uh, there is definitely truth to that. But uh, you, are, you are right in saying that uh, in every sector there are agency problems and uh, the economy evolves to try to uh, fix them. The question is, how fast are we catching up and how many resources are we are wasted in the process? So uh, take, for example, uh, derivatives that uh, can be very useful in many situations, but uh, they also provide uh, pretty strong incentives for CEOs to uh, basically uh, manipulate their earnings by playing with them. And uh, uh, it took a few scandals, like uh, if you remember the Orange County and uh, Procter and Gamble, and so on and so forth, for a number of uh, uh, regulation and uh, uh, directives that limited the uh, massive use and especially limited the abuses. So I think that uh, eventually things will get fixed. The question is, how long is this eventually, and how many resources are wasted? Uh, along the way, because the financial sector is so fast in 
creating innovation. Uh, and uh, it's sort of uh, uh, maybe much faster than uh, a lot of other sectors. Well, you don't have to necessarily come up with physical uh, changes in atoms and molecules. You've got some – you can manipulate bytes and and ones and zeros, I guess, as part of that reason. So that sounds optimistic that, that we catch up. But do you really think that in the wake of the crisis of 2008 – there have been fundamental changes in how financial institutions are run. It seems to me we're back where we started. There's no – I don't have any confidence that we've, we're going to avoid a, a serious crisis for a while because we've, we've compensated for some of the disincentives and agency problems. Do you? I think that uh, there have been some improvements. I think that uh, there was much more emphasis on uh, uh, forcing companies – financial institutions to have higher level of capital. And to some extent, uh, this uh, is having an effect and is actually changing also the businesses these uh, banks are in. Um, have we fixed the problem? First of all, fixing it completely is impossible uh, because we're very yes. good at uh, avoiding the last financial crisis, like generals are always good at winning the last war, uh, but it's the next war and the next financial crisis we need to deal with. And uh, that's much more complicated. But I don't think also uh, everything that could be done has been done. Um, so, for example, I think that uh, uh, the Volcker rule is uh, to separate uh, proprietary trading from uh, um, non-proprietary trading is uh, very difficult to implement. I would prefer a separation between <clears throat> investment banking activity and uh, commercial banking activity. And uh, that separation was uh, not done because of uh, the lobbying pressure of banks. And there are a lot of other things that could have been done faster, better, uh, if uh, there wasn't so much uh, political power residing in the current financial institutions. Yeah, kind of a, as, as you talk about much, you talk about a great deal in the paper. It's, uh, that's a reality that is um, a little bit ominous. Uh, let's talk about fraud. Uh, you, you give some measures of how much uh, fraud and, and dishonesty there is in the fin financial sector in terms of fines and, and other measures. Um, what do we know about that? How much do we think we have uncovered versus have left behind and or ignored or missed? And why is it that there has been so little punishment in this recent financial crisis for fraud relative to, say, the savings and loan uh, problem? I think that's, that's a very good question. I don't have a full answer. Uh, we know that uh, in uh, recent uh, years, the financial institutions paid an enormous amount of fines, uh, but uh, the individuals involved in that did not pay. Uh, so when uh, I charge uh, J.P. Morgan uh, for past fraud done by Countrywide, uh, I think that the current shareholders... Uh, so, sorry, countrywide went to Bank of America. So when I, char when I charge a Bank of America for uh, former fraud done by countrywide, um, the current uh, shareholders of, countrywide, of uh, Bank of America are paying, uh, not necessarily the individuals at countrywide who did the fraud. So I think that uh, while politically uh, appealing, uh, it doesn't really solve the problem. And I think that uh, uh, there's been too much of, uh, of that going on and too little open discussion 
of how pervasive the fraud was. I think that uh, uh, if you look at the narrative about the financial crisis, most people will talk about, of course, uh, subprime loans, uh, but I'm not so sure that most people will point out that the real problem about subprime loans was the extent of fraud going on in them. Yeah, I don't know if we know this, the extent, right? It's, um, and I, I think the the going back to the principal agent problem, both the borrower and the lender at the first level of the uh, transaction uh, had an incentive to commit fraud, either because they were naive about what could happen in the future, and I'm talking about the fraud here where you say um, you dist- say you disguise your income. So I lie. I lie on the form about what my income is, and you make me the loan anyway. The, the problem is, you would have made me the loan anyway if I'd been honest. If, if I'd been honest about it, and I and, and I because one argument being, oh, we both think that prices are rising, so this is not going to be a bad bad thing, or because we're we think we're going to get you think you're going to get bailed out either directly by selling this to somebody else or indirectly by eventually being compensated for that loss. Uh, in a literal bailout by the government, so it seems to me that um, that 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 fraud isn't really at the root of the problem. Am I am I being too um, optimistic there? Yeah, I think that uh, I, I disagree with that. I think that uh, while it is possible that uh, the loan would have been made anyway, the question is if the loan would have been made anyway, why to commit fraud? And in fact, I think that the reason is that some other people would have caught the problem sooner had they seen the data so falsified. And so uh, while maybe the transaction between the two of us would not have changed, other transactions down the line would have changed if we didn't commit fraud in this particular uh, uh, transaction. Fair enough. And I think Fair that- enough. We both wink because, <laughs> because you're going to sell it to Fanny. And Fannie won't take it. Fannie has a rule that it has to have a certain set of compliance. This loan has to comply with certain uh, regulations. But, of course, Fannie also started to think, well, you know, maybe this isn't so bad. We're, everything's going great. They put pressure on the political system to allow them to be more aggressive. So it, it's a little complicated. No, of course, the, the, the tolerance toward fraud uh, goes up in booms. Uh, and I think that uh, that's a well-known phenomenon. Uh, however, I think that uh, the institutions that are deputized to prevent that, for example, auditing, did not do their job. Uh, and I, it's harder to lean against the wind, but that's no excuse not to lean at all. Yeah, no, I totally agree. But let's go back to the question of, of the literal fraud. Uh, somebody filled out a form. People did fill out forms that had lies on them. People rubber stamped them at the financial institutions. People knowingly sold them uh, to other folks, knowing that they were not fully uh, describing what their contents were. You think the problem with punishing the actual uh, perpetrators rather than the institutions is uh, a result of the just that there's so many of them, and you can't just point to to one person in in an organization, or is there is it a political issue that the political power of the individuals protected that has protected them so far uh, now I, I want to just add a lot of them paid a fierce uh, reputational cost but they probably should have gone to jail too on top of it 
Uh, I completely agree. I think that uh, being many makes it easier to get away with that. So definitely that's, that's a big factor. Um, the other factor is uh, is easier to pay fines with somebody else's money. That's part of what uh, uh, takes place. Uh, but but I think that uh, uh, there was a uh, attempt to look the other way, not to consider the seriousness uh, because maybe because there yeah, are too many people who are involved and too many important people and influential people. Yeah, it's um, yeah, I find it. Well, it's 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 depressing. Um, of course, it's it's doubly depressing because it was part of it was motivated by people who had good motives to help people who weren't getting loans, and um, and so there was a bootlegger and Baptist coalition here of uh, a bunch of people who who had what appeared to be good motives um, to increase home ownership with people who just wanted to make money off that and, of course, did, didn't uh, end up um, paying much price for it. Nobody paid much price for it. It's, it's a rather extraordinary event in, in American economic history when you think about it, how the bulk of the cost was borne by taxpayers, how little of it was borne by decision makers, either the politicians or the financial institutions themselves or the people who made the decisions, with the exception of the fact that a lot of people lost their houses – uh, and which is um, very unpleasant. It's bad for your reputation. But they didn't go homeless. They, they, a lot of them had no equity in those homes already. Anyway, um, so I don't know. I, I guess the real question, come back to what I started with, is we don't really have a very good measure of how much fraud there was, and I suppose we never will. Yeah, but we have some in- indication. A colleague of mine have a paper looking at, uh, the, if you want, the most benign version of fraud, which is misreporting of the income, etc. And he finds that on average, more than 10% of those loans, the private label loans, by the way, were at problems. Uh, there is also a very interesting uh, article uh, of all places on Rolling Stones, uh, talking with a whistleblower, J.P. Morgan, who tells you how pervasive uh, uh, fraud was in their loans. So I think that there is some evidence, but it's not uh, as uh, generalized as... Uh, we would have wanted, and I think that uh, uh, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission bears uh, the full responsibility for that. And instead of doing a serious analysis, they ended up in a political squabble. Are you surprised? <laughs> <laughs> I am surprised because think about when the challenger went down, when the shadow yeah. went down. The commission, uh, first of all, had... Uh, very prominent people in it, including uh, Nobel Prize winner in physics, Feynman. Yep. And they came out with a very clear sort of uh, uh, responsibility. Um, they could prove it, and uh, that made a, di- a difference. So I think uh, it's not always the case that these commissions end up in nothing, uh, but uh, this time was definitely one case. Well, I guess um, this goes back to a, one of my... Uh Arguments that longtime econ talk listeners are maybe a little tired of, which is economics is not physics, it's not engineering, it's a you know, complex world. And if we had said we need a commission for what happened in Vietnam, why didn't Vietnam turn out better for the United States? You could put the greatest generals, the greatest politicians, the greatest academics, historians. I don't think they'd come up with a great um, conclusion because the nature of the problem is very different from the challenger problem. I think it's multi-causal. It's 
it's just the nature of reality. But I take your point in general, I guess, or maybe maybe to reinforce my point is that when you're in a multi-causal world, you might expect things other than truth to, to emerge as the motive for the people involved. It is true, but you know what, deter- what determines uh, why the rocket uh, exploded is also probably multicausal. Temperature was one; yeah. it was not just a de- defective O-ring. Um, and I, I grant you that physics is more precise than economics, but I think that uh, uh, you can at least try to go some way in that direction. And I think they made no attempt. Fair enough. <laughs> That's a good. That, that sums it up nicely. Um, at one point in the paper, you write, quote, the healthcare sector is a particularly good comparison for the financial one. Both sectors provide a service everybody needs, but very few people understand, and thus both sectors depend heavily on trust. Both sectors are plagued by conflicts of interest and experience enormous abuse and fraud. In both sectors, the buyers often do not bear the entire cost of their decisions. Finally, both sectors are much bigger in the United States than in most other countries. And you, you have a lot of interesting things to say about that comparison between health and finance. Um, they've both grown dramatically. Uh, we could talk about, again, it would be interesting to speculate about why they've both grown. But um, I think most people would agree that the growth hasn't been as productive as it otherwise would be. Uh, what do you think we can do about the financial sector growth that has been unproductive? And do you have any lessons for – the healthcare sector that, that might be relevant, or they just is it totally different? I don't think it's, it's totally different. I think that uh, my my lesson is is very simple in principle, very difficult in practice, which is to expose all the waste and abuses. I think that uh, there isn't a full understanding in the healthcare sector, for example, of how wasteful uh, it is. In a sense, uh, um, in the United States, uh, are 30 seconds for overall life expectancy below Portugal and Greece, in spite of the fact they spend more, more than four times per capita than, uh, uh, than Portugal and Greece. Now, you might argue that the reason why that's the case is because uh, in Greece they have olive oil and good wine, and in the United States, different not. genetics, different <laughs> genetics, a lot of things, yeah, multicausal. Yeah. There is uh, actually a, a picture that I presented in my presentation. It's not in, in the paper because it's not a picture I produced, but I found it, which uh, uh, is fascinating because it looks at uh, life expectancy changes as a function of changes in uh, health expenditure per capita over years. So you keep the country constant, so more or less the genetic constant, and uh, you look over the years, you increase the, the, the money spent, how much life expectancy goes up. And you see that all developed countries uh, are basically at the same slope. The United States have a much lower slope. So every extra dollar of uh, uh, money spent in uh, healthcare produces less, less benefit in terms of life expectancy in the United States than in countries like uh, uh, the UK, Germany, and so on and so forth. And so, so that, to me, is a very good indicator of the fact we are wasting money. Yeah, I, I wouldn't rely on that, actually. This comes back to our earlier point about the first welfare theorem. You know, I, I would think, well, that's kind of complicated. There's a lot going on. I'd, I'd rely on something simpler, which is that the incentives to add a, a piece of technology 
the incentives uh, and the way we've structured our our health, our medical uh, professional programs in the United States are designed that when you subsidize things, you're going to get things that aren't worth what their true value is, right? They're going to be, we're going, we've encouraged, and most of it's, it's good. Most of it's good. It's, we have, I think we have a very good health system. I just think it's inefficient. I think we've spent more money that we get, as you point out, we get less bang for the buck. But I think we understand the underlying reason why. It's that the way the system compensates innovators, the way hospitals compensate um, their doctors and, and the people who supply the tech, the equipment that they use and so on. And it's not, it's not fraud. There is fraud. There's a lot of fraud, obviously, in, in the in – the, um, payment systems and and there's literal fraud there are doctors who prescribe things that aren't necessary because they want to they want to make more money that that's not the problem though that's not the biggest problem the biggest problem is the fact that the incentives are misaligned it seems to me and uh i think in the financial sector i'm a little more worried about the outright fraud maybe i'm being overly uh, cynical there I, I think you are right in a sense there is fraud in both sectors I think is more important than people realize and sort of uh, uh, make it to be. But the biggest problem is what um, uh, Larry Lassick called institutional corruption, which is perfectly legal, but de facto uh, is pl- playing with the sort of wrong incentives. Is, is, uh, uh, there is a lot of money, uh, for example, spent in healthcare in trying to market uh, um, drugs that are absolutely equivalent, sometimes even slightly worse than existing drugs, but they're just patented, and uh, so they are protected, while there are generics that uh, uh, are equivalent that don't give the same margin. And so you uh, give big subsidies to, uh, in the form of uh, conferences, uh, money grant, etc., to doctors, uh, so that they prescribe those medicines that are more expensive. This is perfectly legal, but it's very wasteful. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how much of a – I find that deeply offensive, but I don't know how much of the magnitude of the problem it is. And, of course, you and your recent uh, appearance on Econ Talk talked about the same problem in the financial sector where the conferences and, and other types of um, – uh, swag and uh, subsidies are a way to buy off the economists and, and finance professors about the nature of their business. Absolutely. The, the two things are very much connected. And, and what is ironic is as uh, economists, we see very clearly the problem in the healthcare sector and we point fingers yeah. and we're not afraid to point fingers. When it comes to us, then all of a sudden we say we're different. Of course we are. Yes, we're highly principled. We're not like those. We're not like those doctors. <laughs> we're the good. We're, you know, when people say to me because uh, I have a PhD, they call me Doctor So and So. I quote a friend of mine who's who's who says, "Oh no, I'm, I'm the other kind of doctor. I'm not the kind that helps people." But uh, here, <laughs> here we have this example where we look down on the people who are actually saving lives because they occasionally prescribe a higher cost uh, drug. Whereas we're uh, only just destroying the uh, the economy through multi-trillion dollar investments in things that aren't productive. So I don't know. It's kind of a funny um, funny thing. L- let's talk um, let's talk about the payday loan example used in the book uh, that you mentioned earlier. Um, you argue in the in your paper, excuse me, in the paper. You argue in the paper that that payday loans are not a good innovation. And 
I'm a little bit surprised. I know there's arguments on both sides. Of course, some of the arguments that say they're good were financed by the payday loan industry. I think we talked about that in our last episode. But I talk about payday loans generally. Uh, I'm not saying that payday, all form of, uh, let's say, short-term uh, lending uh, to unsecured and very high rate is bad. The problem with a payday loan is this, they are designed in a particular structure. So instead of being installment loans that you borrow a certain amount and then slowly over time you repay, uh, you borrow a certain amount and you have to return it plus a large fee, uh, all in one sort of instance uh, on a very short time horizon. And uh, most people who do that don't fully understand the cost of this. And when it comes to repay them, they are, of course, unable to. And uh, there is a very interesting experiment in, in Colorado where they forced to offer payday loans in the form of installment loans and uh, with, with much lower rates. And we have seen that uh, uh, not only uh, there, were, there were a few defaults and few problems, etc., but, and this is the ironic thing, but the supply went up. Now you're saying, wait a minute, if you make something less profitable, how is it possible that supply went up? And the answer is that uh, before there was too much entry in the payday loan industry. So if uh, I can find uh, a sucker and overcharge him and there is free entry, too many people will enter this industry trying to find suckers to exploit. And uh, you know that there are today more payday loans outlets in the United States than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. So yeah, I saw that uh, statistic. I was surprised. Carry on. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really, really shocking. Uh, in Colorado, when they introduced this reform, the number of payday loans went, uh, went down dramatically. Uh, as a result, the few that remained were more profitable, and they could get by with lower rates. And so uh, the system overall became more efficient. So in, a, in a system where you don't, the, the customer is not uh, smart enough to see uh, the, uh, the difference, uh, you have to help competition go in the right direction, not in the wrong direction. And, and the current pay-to-load system um, might still be better than the alternative, which is illegal uh, usury loans, but is not as good as what they've done in Colorado. So there is a way to improve things. Uh, we need to understand what, what, uh, what's going on. Yeah, I'd like, it'll be interesting to see if that result holds up, especially if other states uh, follow suit and, uh, and pursue that. I used to hear a similar argument about taxi cabs. We have to limit the number of taxi cabs because otherwise – so many people just enter the market, and then they won't be able to make much money, and then they'll charge higher fares. And we used to, I'm not going to dig up the papers, but there were papers that said the competitive equilibrium with taxi cabs is going to be very unhealthy, so we have to have regulation. As we move towards a more competitive equilibrium through innovation, through Uber and Lyft and other firms, it seems to have gotten a lot better. Um, so I, it could be this is different. I'm, I'm I'm open-minded about that, but I think it's – we'll see. I need some more – No, no, I, I completely agree. But the fact that an argument is abused doesn't mean that it's never right. <laughs> That's correct. I agree. <laughs> Good point. 
Uh, let's turn to what is to be done. And, and you, in the in the paper, you talk about different areas. You talk about uh, policy uh, positions that that economists and, and financial uh, professors might take. You talk about research we might do. I want to start because I want to make sure we get to this. Uh, I don't want to leave this to last. Let's talk about the classroom. So I, I've never taught uh, finance before, but I've taught in a business school, and you teach in a business school. What are we doing to our students, perhaps, that we ought not to be doing? And what should we be doing instead when we talk about the financial sector and um, these issues we're discussing today? Yeah, f- first of all, I want to be, be, be clear because uh, when uh, the typical economist talks about something uh, inefficient, uh, the answer is uh, we need more government regulation of some kind or another. And uh, I am not uh, that kind of economist, and I think that uh, in this particular sector, the financial sector, government regulation is often uh, the problem, not the solution. So, and I was addressing a bunch of uh, financial economists, not a bunch of uh, policymakers. So I thought that the most important thing was to discuss what we can do as a profession rather than what somebody else can do. And, and one of the things, as you pointed out, is uh, what we do in the classroom. And I think that uh, we have a little bit of envy vis-a-vis sort of uh, physicists. And so we think that uh, we can uh, behave like uh, uh, physicists in uh, uh, having just a positive approach describe reality without entering into what we call in economics normative, without saying what you should do. We just describe facts like a physicist uh, describes the uh, walking of the atoms. It doesn't really say what is the right way or the wrong way. However, there is a fundamental difference we don't uh, perceive is physicists don't teach to atoms. We do teach to sort of business people, especially us in business school. And so we should be concerned about the impact that our teaching can have on, uh, uh, on people and the impact they seem to have. There, there are two sort of uh, interesting studies. There are actually many, but two in particular I cite in, in my, my work. One is, is uh, showing that the teaching of economics seems to be making people more selfish. selfish. There's definitely a selection that more selfish people tend to enter economics, but also that once you are exposed to more economics, you tend to be more selfish. So there is a bit of this uh, step between uh, we take for granted that people pursue their self-interest. That's, that's an assumption. But then without sort of uh, uh, openly saying it, uh, we use it so often that people feel like entitled that this is the right thing to do. Because it's rational. Because we, 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 we show them how rational it is for people to say – Price discriminate, and so therefore it must be okay because it's rational. But that's not true. Absolutely. It doesn't follow. It's a terrible mistake. And there is a very recent article published in, in Nature uh, the end of last year showing that the bank employees behave more dishonestly when their professional identity is rendered salient. This is an experiment. So if you take a bank employee and you remind him or her that he's a banker, he's going to behave differently than if he's reminded that, that he is a postal worker. And uh, what is interesting is if you take a postal worker and you remind him that uh, he's a postal worker, he doesn't behave more dishonestly. If you remind him that he's a, he's a banker or he tells her that he should act as a banker, he does not behave more dishonestly. So it's just a combination of sort of uh, existing banker and the, the kind of uh, uh, 
saliency of the professional identity that makes people uh, more dishonest. And so I think we should be careful about the subtle uh, normative uh, messages that we give to our students without taking full responsibility. Generally in business school, what we do is we teach uh, without any um, moral consideration. And then we have some separate classes dedicated right. to <laughs> ethics. Yeah. And that basically say, in, when you do business, you should not really care about any moral notion, uh, but you should wash your mouth in a class about talking about ethics. And I'm saying we need to change this. Uh, if we think there is a room for uh, morality in our teaching, it should be in the classroom in where we teach finance or, uh, as you said, uh, price marketing and price discrimination or other stuff should not be separated in a little ghetto where nobody cares about. Yeah, I've been thinking lately about whether uh, we should teach Adam Smith's theory of happiness in our uh, micro classes. You know, Smith said man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely, meaning uh, respected, honored, and admired and worthy of respect and admiration and honor. And uh, maybe if we taught our students that that's what brings true satisfaction instead of, say, uh, X1 and X2, maybe they'd behave more love, be more lovely when they get out into the world. I don't know. But certainly, if you teach people how, that it's rational for businesses, say, to price discriminate or to arbitrage uh, certain situations that are maybe not so healthy for some of the players or to sell stuff to people who don't understand their products – Maybe that would change how they behaved. I don't. You think it would? You think it would matter? I think that uh, I. First of all, I agree a hundred percent with sort of what uh, Alice Smith said. I think it does play an important role. People care not only about money, but they care about social prestige, our other regard, and so on and so forth. So, if we change the perception uh, of uh, social prestige, for example, even in business school as a function of uh, uh, other dimension, I think this will play a role in, in the way people act. Do you want to suggest how a business school curriculum might look if uh, we put the ethics into – who would be teaching those classes? You and me, of course. But who else would be able to teach these ethical uh, practice classes with, without having that, that dividing line? I think that uh, it's not a question of uh, teaching – uh, ethical classes, I think is exposing ethical problems in business decision. So in, uh, if uh, I, I teach a, a very old uh, uh, case in my entrepreneurial class where somebody starts something close to Bloomberg and uh, as a way to finance uh, this innovation is smart enough to go and raise money from uh, his future customers. And, and I advertise this as a great idea. Yeah. Then I present another case of uh, somebody who tried to sell a handout device uh, to museums. And, uh, and, uh, and then I say, okay, now how do you go about raising money? And then they immediately say, okay, you go to uh, museums curators and you try to raise money from them. And I said, okay. And How's you that think that work? this creates <laughs> – exactly. I start to make them sensitive that there are some – conflict of interest. And, uh, and my rule is uh, 
are you comfortable with this news appearing on the New York Times or Wall Street Journal? You name the, the, the your newspaper the next morning. If you're comfortable, go ahead. If you're not comfortable, then you should probably not do it. Yeah, I think let's. I, I totally agree. I, let's close with a an issue that that came up in your in your paper about. At one point, you say, "Well, it's sort of inevitable there are going to be ethical issues in finance because the only metric is money." And it's it's interesting, you know, in the, in the middle of the crisis. Um, I, I think it was an actual quote. I, I have to be careful, but it, it got repeated this way uh, that Lloyd Blankfein, the head of Goldman Sachs, when challenged about his actions during the crisis, said, quote, we're doing God's work. And I think, you know, when I was younger and and romantic about uh, the financial sector, as I was about most sectors, uh, about their effectiveness, uh, I thought, well, yeah, of course the financial sector does important, useful things. It's what we started this conversation about. And yet now I'm, I'm not so confident, uh, and I think it's because of the incentives they face. But we could imagine a world where people in the financial sector really saw what they were doing as important. They understood the connection, say, between that arbitrage opportunity and the outcomes being better or maybe worse under certain circumstances. Um, do you think there's any value, going back to the classroom, to exp- giving more time and space for students to understand the uh, not so the unseen impacts of finance, both good and bad, that would maybe change the culture of that world to be about something other than keeping score via money? I think it would be very important uh, in two dimensions. First, to make uh, existing students more sort of uh, sensitive to this problem, but also in attracting more sensitive students to finance. I think that uh, if uh, the only metric of finance is money, it will attract only certain kind of people. And uh, in, if it is uh, about uh, more than just money, it will attract also different kind of people. People have, have complained that uh, the kind of people that have been attracted to finance in the last 20 years are the, quote, best and the brightest. Let's put the best to the side, but the brightest, that that the most talented people have gone into finance rather than so-called real fields where they could have had a bigger impact on humanity. Do you think that's a fair um, critique of what's going on in the financial sector in terms of the employment side? It is a fair critique to the extent that we realize that some financial innovation is wasteful. Uh, if we think that all financial innovation is very productive, uh, at least at the same rate in which uh, technical innovation and other innovation is productive, then uh, we can rely on uh, uh, sort of a standard economics argument to say, what's the problem with that? Uh, once we start opening up the possibility that uh, some of this financial innovation is purely rent-seeking, then we have a major distortion that is costly to uh, the very growth of uh, the U.S. economy. So your last two appearances here have been very critical of the hand that feeds you to some extent. Of course, the hand that literally feeds you is the University of Chicago, but the club that you're in, the club of financial economists, of economists who work with financial issues, uh, your last appearance in your a previous paper was about how uh, captured the financial economics world is, that they're not 
they have integrity issues they need to be aware of just as they would be if they were looking at other people. This paper is about the very underpinnings of the experience that the financial sector itself maybe is not so uh, good for the uh, for uh, people and other living things. Uh, what kind of reaction have you gotten from your colleagues and uh, friends in the industry uh, and in, in academia? Um, I actually got overall a surprisingly good reaction in the sense that uh, when I presented the, this last paper, the finance uh, association, uh, I had an overwhelmingly positive reaction. Now, maybe only the, the positive things came <laughs> and talked to me. Yeah, you never know. Always a but I think that overall was not, uh, uh, was not bad at all. Uh, for the previous paper on uh, economist capture, I think I got more skepticism. Uh, but the important thing for me, I don't expect everybody to be uh, converted right away. The important thing is that I was not marginalized in the profession because uh, hopefully people understand that uh, I'm not uh, uh, really biting the, hands, the, the hand that feeds me. What I'm doing is uh, preventing that that hand uh, will deteriorate uh, in the long term. I, I want to be the critical conscience of the profession rather than being the guy spitting on the profession. And uh, uh, so far, I think I've succeeded. My guest today has been Luigi Singales. Luigi, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, as usual. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, for more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.